Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. From 1861 to 1865, the U.S. Navy blockaded the ports of the southern states. How did a Navy with only a few dozen ships set out to blockade 3,500 miles of coastline? How did the Confederacy respond? What were the international ramifications of the campaign? And most of all, how effective was the blockade in bringing the war to a successful close? We'll ask these questions and more to Gil Hahn, author of Campaign for the Confederate Coast, Blockading, Blockade Running, and Related Endeavors During the American Civil War. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not too far from Dowdy Ficklin Stadium on the campus of East Carolina University, where the Pirates play. Uh, but not speaking for the Pirates or the University or anyone else, I'll be speaking only for myself tonight, as always. And my guest, likewise, will only be representing himself. Well, it is uh, the third week, it looks like, in September 2021. And normally I open the show with a little chit-chat about what's happening on campus here at East Carolina University, and then we move to the show. But tonight I thought we would just spend the entire hour reliving the events in Huntington, West Virginia, uh, last Saturday when ECU's football team played the Marshall uh, Herd in a dramatic uh, football game with the Pirates 
trailing by 17 points deep into the fourth quarter. I had given up on the game, gone over to my computer where I could no longer see the TV. I could just sort of hear it in the background. And I was typing something interesting about the Civil War, I'm sure. But then I heard, hey, they got a touchdown. And then I heard they got another touchdown. I went to watch, and sure enough, ECU scored three times in the last eight minutes to overtake Marshall and win the game. It was uh, truly a unusual and remarkable and uh, very pleasurable sports event for the ECU Pirates. So, unfortunately, you did not get to see it in all probability because it wasn't on ESPN. It was on uh, Facebook, of all things. Uh, I had to cast it from my my uh, Surface uh, tablet onto the TV screen to be able to see it at decent size. But th- that brought up something interesting about the game, which was ECU and Marshall are are linked in history because uh, I'm sure many of you know this, even if you're not football fans, that did 50, 51 years ago, uh, Marshall played ECU in Greenville, and when their team flew back to West Virginia, there was a plane crash, and, and everyone aboard lost their lives. And so the two institutions are... are linked by memory of that tragedy, much more so at Marshall, of course, than at ECU, but we do have a marker in our stadium. And when the teams play each other, there's a sort of sense that we remember there's something bigger and more important than sports in, in the world. And I maybe it was just uh, seeing what I expected to see, but I thought the comments window on the side of the game that was being shown over Facebook had a level of trash talking between the fans of the two schools that was quite a bit more restrained than you normally see uh, in terms of what people were saying about each other. Because, again, I think we remember when we think of those two teams uh, that that there are bigger things out there. Uh, Now, at one point during the game, the announcer said, you know, this event happened in 1970, and my wife was watching. This was in the first half when we were both watching, and she said, well, uh, he just made a mistake. He said 1970, but wasn't it 50 years ago? And I said 1970 was 50 or 51 years ago. And we both were gobsmacked. How can anything have happened 50 years ago and still be at a time when we were old enough to remember it? Um, that, that just ain't right. In other news, the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours group is getting ready to go back to the battlefields for the first time since before the pandemic. Uh, Two years now, the guest list arrived on my email today. I'm delighted to see. I hope you're on it. Hope you'll be joining me in a few weeks. And if not, I hope you can join us in the spring. Uh, And I hope you can join us next week as well when uh, our guest will be John David Smith, who's co-editor of the Long Civil War, New Explorations in America's Enduring Conflict. And we'll move into October with uh, Chris Moore and a book called Apostle of the Lost Cause, J. William Jones, Baptists, and the Development of Confederate Memory. I don't know anything about J. William Jones, but we both will when we hear him talk. Uh, The following week, I'll be on the road with uh, the tour I just mentioned, And then we'll have uh, Ronald C. White in his book on the Private Lincoln. Uh, That's President Abraham Lincoln, not private as in PFC, but the the private world of Abraham Lincoln. We'll be talking with him. And we'll finish the month of October with David Maury returning to the show and his book on Cincinnati in the Civil War. 
This week I happened to see the National Book Awards uh, long list for nonfiction was released, and one of the titles on it was called The Black Civil War Soldier, A Visual History of Conflict and Citizenship by Deborah Willis, and I'm happy to say that we will have Professor Willis uh, on the show with us in December, and we'll get to hear what all the buzz is behind her National Book Award candidate book. So that's another thing to look forward to. You can find all these things, as always, at www.impedimentsofwar.org or the Impediments of War Facebook site. Uh, Mark Gaffney keeps all of these things going for us. You can also buy books there. You can donate to the show there. You can donate to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund. It's not a real... Uh, fund in the sense of uh, there are people overseeing it who are disinterested uh, fiduciaries. It's actually a slush fund. It just goes into my pocket, and you cannot deduct it. Therefore, uh, it's it's just a gift for doing the show. If you do enjoy the show, I appreciate that. But I appreciate, even if you don't contribute, just hearing from you. Send me an email. Tell me what you like. That's always welcome. Also welcome is our guest tonight, Gil Hahn, the author of uh, the Campaign for the Confederate Coast, Blockading, Blockade Running, and Related Endeavors During the American Civil War. Uh, Mr. Hahn, are you there? I am here, Jerry. Thank you for having me on your show. Well, welcome. Good good to have you here. Um, so I, I've been enjoying reading your book this past week. It is a... Uh, uh, advanced reader copy that I have here, so it doesn't have some some of the information that uh, maybe final versions have on the dust jacket, like like what the author does when he's not writing. So let me start with that question. Um, uh, well, what what else are you up to? My my day job is as general mm-hmm. counsel and uh, chief compliance officer of a small uh, securities firm here in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, as a weekend part-time job, I also am a demonstrator at the Hagley Museum. Uh, Hagley uh, preserves what remains of the original DuPont gunpowder factories, and uh, I uh, operate and explain the operation of a steam engine. Uh, in the past, I've also uh, demonstrated other industrial equipment. That's um that museum, I'm trying to recall, I think it was uh, the, uh, was it Rachel Lance, the book about the uh, the Hunley, who talked about going there to, uh, because the museum had uh, information. Now, I may be getting confused, or it may have been uh, the Torpedo book, but uh, an author that I talked to last last couple of years spent some time at that museum uh, doing research that involved uh, Civil War chemicals, basically. Uh, and, and, uh, Hagley, Hagley Museum has associated with it a substantial uh, business library, as well mm-hmm. as uh, some DuPont uh, family and company papers. So it's quite possible that uh, a, a researcher doing uh, looking into uh, 19th century industry uh, might mm-hmm. find uh, valuable resources there. Excellent. Well, the uh, I would 
I want to say this in a way that, that you, you don't think is, is, is negative in any way. Um, but as I was reading the book, I thought, this sounds lawyerly to me. And, and having, <laughs> having myself practiced law for a few years, not many, uh, I, I mean that as, as a compliment and that lawyers write very – good lawyers write precisely. They, they say you know, exactly what they want to mean uh, more carefully than – that most people communicate because you know that's your job. Your communication is all you have, and you have to get it just right. Uh, but it it struck me that 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 came through in the style. Did, did were you conscious of that as you were writing this? Well, I have a long history of uh, as a commercial lawyer. I spent mm-hmm. many years writing up uh, prospectuses for securities offerings. Uh, that were reviewed by the SEC, and I made mm-hmm. very careful, was, was very careful in my writing, that I was both clear and accurate. And uh, I've tried to make that come through in my historical writing because I want to let the reader understand as fully as possible uh, what's going on. And uh, uh, some some books that focus on technical aspects um, I get the impression that the the, the, the the writers don't always fully comprehend what it is they're they're writing about. And when I write, I do try to understand the subject as clearly as I can and then express that in words um, that I want to be uh, as expressive of what I understand. I think that that's... I mean, people may make fun of lawyers, but it's something one learns in in law school and in the practice of law that that uh, you know, famously, uh, words are blunt tools, but they're all we have to communicate, and so they have to be really used with care. And I guess that's what I'm saying. As I was reading this, I thought these words are chosen with care. This is not somebody just dashing this stuff off. Uh, that that it, it's it's Thank quite you. precise. Um, so what brought you to the project? What, what interested you in writing about the blockade? Well, I have always been interested in the Civil War um, and have a, a, an interest in American history generally. When I started working at the Hagley Museum, I learned more about gunpowder, the process of making gunpowder, and about the machine tools and the industry that goes into creating uh, the implements of war. Uh, I started looking at the Civil War era as a way to to tell an interesting story and became persuaded that there was very little room left uh, on land to to tell that kind of story. It's it's been raked over minutely, and there was uh, little I felt I could offer. But when I started looking at the blockade, I, I started looking around for volumes that could explain to me the full scope of the historical tapestry, and I found lots of uh, lots of work that uh, explained parts of it and discussed parts of it, but nothing that uh, gave the the whole picture. And so, in my research, I tried to. Uh, learn as much as I can about various different aspects, and then uh, weave them into a story that I hoped that people would find interesting, and at least I would find persuasive uh, of, of what I was finding. 
So the um, I'm losing my train of thought as we go here. Let me uh, let's see. the uh, the the book that I'm reading. That's what it was. This is a I mentioned already a, a reader copy, an advanced reader copy, uh, and it does not have a bibliography. It doesn't have the page numbers for the footnotes and other things that get added at the last. Uh, in the last final version, uh, when the paid pagination is final and so on. Um, did you add a bibliography to this? It does have extensive footnotes. Uh, uh, does I, the final I didn't version? Think it was, uh, it, it, no, it does not. Uh, I didn't think that was necessary because I had uh, written such, or had included such extensive notes. Uh, right. I did not include footnotes because I was... Um, I remember having read uh, years ago in uh, Stephen Hawking's A Short History of Time uh, the advice he uh, repeated from his uh, publisher that the more footnotes you include, uh, the more readers you lose. Um, <laughs> I've, come to, I've come to regret that decision. Um, I think uh, these days uh, I'm moving away from physical books and moving into e-books for my own right. consumption. And I find the convenience of a electronic footnote um, vastly helpful. Uh, it, it, would, it would not be in either the physical or e-book version of uh, my, my current volume. Uh, mm. In my future projects, I, I intend to make, uh, make the switch over to uh, either end-of-chapter notes or end-of-book notes, and in the electronic version, ones that you can flip to immediately um, to, to, to find right. out what the reference is. Yeah, that, that, it, the electronic version really has it, 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 made it, that much more convenient, hasn't it? We're going to take a short break. It, we'll come back in just a minute. We'll talk more with our guest tonight, Gil Hahn. He's the author of Campaign for the Confederate Coast, Blockading, Blockade Running, and Related Endeavors During the American Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Variety Channel. Attention veterans, are you ready to be your own boss? It's time to launch your own ideas into reality. Discover your clean writing style. Gear up with Marine Corps trained motivator, Christina Silva. Christina is a positive energy promoter with a special gift in connecting with innovators. Get the Military Heroes 411 and glean from experts every week by listening to The Christina Silva Show. We're educating our veterans live on The Christina Silva Show, live at 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Gil Hahn, author of Campaign for the Confederate Coast, Blockading, Blockade Running, and Related Endeavors During the American Civil War. So, Gil, I asked you the bibliography question because when you said in the first segment that the blockade really hasn't been written about to the same extent as the war on land, that's certainly true. Uh, but my first thought was, well, you know, what about Stephen Wise's book, Lifeline of the Confederacy? Uh, you know, surely he must be familiar with that. And then, and since there was the bibliography, I couldn't immediately check. But then I started looking through your notes, and sure enough, there it was. Of course, you 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 know that book. Uh, so, so how does this distinguish itself from other, uh, from from the few other books that have touched on the the topic of the blockade? Well, I try to take it from all points of view, uh, understanding the technologies and weapons systems available at the time, how they were used, um, trying to get at the motivations of the blockade runners. Uh, trying to get at the motivations and actions of the nations, uh, national, national governments, uh, non-U.S. national governments, uh, that were trying to exert their influence over uh, the, the federal and Confederate governments, and uh, then uh, trying to tie it all together in a chronology that uh, looked both at the attempt at the rise and fall of blockade running and the, the rise uh, of the blockade, effective, rise of the effectiveness of the blockaders, and at the same time uh, tied into that the effort of the federal uh, military forces to, to close the Confederate ports, which eventually uh, acted as a stopper to, to blockade running effectively. Uh, from there, uh, I was actually surprised to find a, uh, a couple of sources that I could tie together that uh, let me understand the sources of cotton available uh, for, for um, insertion into international commerce and uh, another source that uh, showed me where the cotton came out and um, to draw some inferences from that information uh, about the nature and success or lack of success of blockade running. And uh, I concluded that uh, while the blockade itself was not terribly successful in stopping much of the blockade running, the existence of the blockade acted as a substantial deterrent uh, to much of the international trade that might have helped the Confederacy sustained itself during the war. And uh, that that perhaps was uh, a factor uh, in the uh, ultimate failure of the Confederate experiment. So, you know, looking at it from from the back end, you can look at these numbers, uh, as you do in your book, you show how much cotton was exported and 
uh, imported into the North uh, during the war later and, and, and into the United Kingdom. And, and you, you trace these, these amounts. Uh, but if we start at the other end of the war, in, in 1861, the, the question has to occur, how did the United States government even imagine that the, the Navy in the shape it was in then could possibly form an effective blockade over a, a 3,000-mile-plus coastline? There was no way. Um, with 42 ships in in in, in commission, uh, there was no way that they could possibly uh, affect that. And it was uh, with the work of uh, Gideon Wells, the remarkable Secretary of the Navy, that uh, built that uh, force original force of ships into a, a navy in the course of a few short years that consisted of over 600 vessels. Uh, not all of them terribly effective, but many of them uh, increasingly so, especially as they started um, capturing some of the purpose-built blockade runners and then setting them, uh, setting them to the task of catching other blockade runners. So it was a, quite a remarkable undertaking. I regard uh, Secretary Wells as a uh, one of the, the most remarkable Secretary of Navies um, up there with uh, James Forrestal. Well, he, I guess, like Forrestal to some degree, uh, he presided over a time of, of really dramatic technological change uh, where the ships that that are in the Navy when Wells takes office are quite different from those when he leaves. And uh, you stress that point in your book, that technology is really uh, a significant part of the success of the blockade. It, it is, um, with, with the qualification. Uh, the Navy was becoming a steam-powered Navy. Uh, its ships were primarily wooden. They still had masts and sails. They took a fire on a couple of remarkable experimental armored ships um, in a time when uh, most of the, many of the foremost navies in the world were experimenting that way. There was no right. uh, question that uh, that was the way that uh, technology was going to go. But beyond that fact, uh, beyond the fact of slight improvements, beyond the fact of um, iron-hauled and steel-hauled ships uh, built uh, in England, built in, in, uh, in, in the United Kingdom, and mm-hmm. brought over to become blockade runners, there's not a whole lot of technical change. Um, it's just a different way of using uh, the technologies. And uh, also, what's remarkable is not only did the monitor concept, uh, which was at first uh, poo-pooed uh, by the Navy establishment, later become um, a key element in uh, blockading Charleston Harbor. Uh, Admiral DuPont, for example, uh, could see no benefit of the monitors, and he uh, glumly, uh, and again, I guess against his better judgment, um, led a uh, an attack uh, of the uh, ironclads that he had in his disposal on uh, Fort Sumter, uh, a pretty much failed attack. Uh, mm-hmm. And his successor, Admiral Dahlgren, uh, brought those monitors into the harbor and used them to stop her, uh, the, the blockade tra- traffic entirely. 
uh, it was the same technology, the same vessels, but uh, mm-hmm. used in an, uh, a, a new way and an imaginative way that had not been uh, uh, thought of before. Now, so the change you mentioned both, oh. both in the technology itself and in its utilization. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned there's a few technical technological developments that that were not exploited very far. Uh, you know, I, most listeners to the show, you know, every listener to the show has heard of the monitor. We thought about ironclads, but uh, you talk about things like calcium lights on ships. Uh, what were they, and, yes. and, and what what could they have done with them? Well, uh, what they were used for uh, primarily was in Charleston Harbor when the uh, Federals were making an attack on Fort Wagner. They were used to illuminate the fort at night to prevent the uh, Confederates from repairing the damage uh, under the cover of darkness to their earthen fort and uh, preventing the Confederates from resupplying uh, their fort, again, under the cover of darkness. Uh, One of the uh, uh, commanders, lieutenants or lieutenant commander, the young man named Quackenbush, I can't remember his rank, uh, wrote to Secretary Wells suggesting that uh, some uh, uh, calcium lights or lime lights uh, should be put on blockading vessels uh, to look to help them uh, 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 see blockaders running into and out of the Confederate ports. Um, you see scenes like that in uh, war movies about World War II, but uh, mm-hmm. this was a forward-thinking idea that uh, I think was not taken up because it came from a, a, a lowly uh, commander uh, rather than a uh, squadron commander. Uh, a later, uh, a, a, one of the squadron commanders later on made the same suggestion but too late in the war to have much effect. Imagine what would have been the difference uh, if you had a couple of searchlights scanning the horizon outward from the blockading line or inward toward the mouth of the harbor at night. Instead of a blockading vessel being able to sneak by, it would be the center of attraction. Imagine, uh, as you see in one of these Hollywood movies, an actress walking on the stage and all of a sudden three big searchlights Bang, hit her, and there she is, right the center of attack, attention. Same thing for uh, one of these stealthy, uh, stealthy blockade runners come running in or coming out. There were other things that the blockaders did that that sort of escape attention that, that we don't always think about. Um, you make a point of, of discussing the logistics of the blockade, that the, the ship's offshore had to be supplied, had to get back to a, a port periodically. Uh, and, uh, you know, I learned something about uh, beef preservation, that they they actually brought frozen beef out to the ships. And uh, uh, in, 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 uh, the, the Navy supply ships. Uh, and this was before commercial, yes, before, like, before mechanical refrigeration has been invented. So how, how did they get the fresh oh, beef out there? Well, there was a big industry in this country uh, of uh, harvesting ice during the winter and storing it in uh, uh, insulated warehouses for use during the year. Uh, So there was uh, was already a lot of ice available. And what they 
what they first tried to do was use this ice to create chill rooms uh, uh, where they had the ice uh, in a a room above where the beef carcasses were hung uh, in order to keep them cold. Well, that didn't work out quite so well. So they tried to stack layers of uh, ice and layers of beef, uh, essentially fusing them into a pack uh, inside an insulated building. And they found that uh, that worked much better, and they were able to distribute more of the beef to more of the blockading squadrons uh, with much less wastage. Uh, in fact, uh, the technology for refrigeration did exist uh, in the in the world. It was being used extensively in the United Kingdom, um, yes. but they had there was such a large uh, ice industry here that. Uh, there, there was no economic need for it. So that uh, I'm picturing what our freezer looked like uh, at the early days of the pandemic when people were buying meat and other supplies, not knowing when grocery stores would be available. And, and the layers of beef and ice stacked together made me think uh, we should probably thaw out some of that stuff now. Uh, well, so we, the we, we live here. I'm sorry, go ahead. Please go ahead. I said uh, the, we live here at the end of the uh, end of the power grid, and so my image is uh, when we have one of the ex- extended blackouts uh, down here in Delaware uh, after a, after a large storm. Uh, my images of the of food in our refrigerator and freezer with bags of dry ice that we picked up from uh, the parking lot of uh, one one of the neighborhood malls. That's uh, so. The technology is still there to keep. Keeping our food cold the old old style way. Uh, that's why they call what about the icebox. That's right. The uh, so what about the Confederate response to the blockade? Um, let's let's talk about that for a bit. What uh, did did the Confederacy, the Confederate Navy, such as it was, immediately begin organizing blockade running from the start? They did not, uh, and that, I think, was one of their greatest, greatest mistakes. Um, the, uh, what, what they did was rather the cotton, uh, encourage the cotton embargo. This was not formal, that's a formal Confederate policy, but it was uh, undertaken as a way to try to blackmail uh, Britain and France into recognizing the, uh, the Confederacy. There was cotton to be had, but it was held off of the market, I think, much to the Confederates' detriment. Uh, when the Confederates realized the folly of that course, they started to take hesitating steps to encourage blockade running, and eventually they got into the business themselves. They uh, became much more e- efficient economically uh, in their approach to it, uh, taking steps that if having been un- if, if having un- been undertaken early in the war might have uh, reaped them with much greater benefits. They also so they, uh, yeah, tried to organize. I'm sorry. No, no. Uh, they also ahead. tried to organize the resources uh, for blockade runners by by rationing pilots, by encouraging blockade runners to share information, by sharing information. They had collected about the location of federal blockading vessels. So they, they eventually both got into the business and 
did what they could to encourage and to some extent trap uh, independent blockade runners into the uh, into continuing in the blockade running business um, with, with with some success, but uh, the uh, ultimately uh, the closing of the Confederate ports are cut off cut off the flow of traffic. So so the, the blockade runners then were not an arm of the Confederate Navy, but they are for the most part private entrepreneurs who are hoping to turn a profit from, from getting through. The, the profit motivation was really with the independent blockade runners. The, 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 mm-hmm. the uh, munitions department uh, and the Confederate Navy, both, um, and, and the Army, all uh, participated in blockade running to some extent mm-hmm. because it became their surest way of getting the most economic benefit for the for for, uh, for themselves and the and the best best military return, um, they just started too late. Now, one of the uh, interesting things that you talk about here, and and we're going to take a break in a minute, and I'll come back and ask you this question, uh, is about the international ramifications. A uh, blockade uh, necessarily interrupts trade with other countries, and those countries have a vested interest in in trade. So uh, certainly Britain uh, and to a lesser extent France are going to respond uh, to the blockade and, and to its enforcement and, and one can picture all kinds of things going wrong in this scenario. So we'll come back and talk more about that aspect of uh, the blockade as described in the book Campaign for the Confederate Coast, Blockading, Blockade Runners and Related Endeavors during the American Civil War. The author is our guest tonight, Gail Hahn, and I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Gil Hahn, author of Campaign for the Confederate Coast, Blockading, Blockade Running, and Related Endeavors During the American Civil War. Uh, Gil, I want to ask you about the international aspect, but I wanted to slip one other question before I do that. Uh, Everybody knows about sutlers that follow the army, the guys who sell extra food and supplies to make up for the terrible rations the troops are getting. I did not realize there were sutlers in the Navy who, uh, how do you, how does a sutler in the Navy work? Do they follow in their own rowboat behind the, the monitor and try to sell stuff to the guys? Actually, they had a cabin reserved for them in the supply ships. Uh, they were, were allotted a certain amount of uh, storage space. And they uh, operated alongside the uh, regularly constituted uh, uh, Navy supply system. It, it seems remarkable that that would uh, that the Navy makes room for the, for this private seller, uh, you know, to 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 do this to go along with them. Uh, I mean, you know, ships have have their own stores now, but but uh, well, I I don't know. Maybe the ship stores are run by private. Uh, enterprise these days. I guess I don't know that. Um, so international aspects. One one thing that struck me was the uh, uh, you talk about the stone ships that were sunk in the the channel at Charleston. The idea to block blockade the harbor literally by blocking it with hulks full of stones and, and sinking them in the channel. And you said the British government, uh, I mean, the Confederates didn't like it, but the British government didn't like this. What? Why do they care if the U.S. is blocking its own harbor? Uh, there was a lot of uh, pro-Confederate sentiment uh, in the British government. Uh, plus, uh, I think it was commonly believed, whether honestly or not, mm-hmm. that uh, a step like this would uh, permanently close uh, a, a harbor which would uh, deny the world the benefit uh, of this uh, refuge from uh, at the end of the uh, highways across the sea. Uh, it was a, an exercise, it was an expression, mm-hmm. I think, uh, of their political outrage uh, as much as their um, emotional indignation. Um, it, it was interesting uh, that, uh, in fact, the uh, British had done the same thing during the American Revolution, and the damage mm-hmm. had been undone. Um, also, as it happened, uh, the ships quickly sank out of sight, and uh, there was no damage to the port as a port. Now, the, the British, uh, is that why the U.S. Navy did not plant mines around these ports uh, out of fear of damaging a British ship? I don't know. I I haven't found any discussion of that, but uh, that would seem to me to be uh, among the reasons. So there's also, I think, uh, running through 
the um, uh, American Navy, uh, certainly the Federal Navy, as expressed, I, I recall most firmly by uh, uh, Admiral Farragut, that uh, these uh, torpedoes, these mines, uh, were a dastardly instrument. And uh, while he uh, asked for some, I don't know that he ever used them. It certainly would have been an effective, a more effective way to uh, close traffic into and out of one of the Confederate ports than the stone fleet turned out to be. Um, I guess there was uh, the, just, just the abhorrence to, to use it. Yeah, because, I mean, we know the, the Confederates used mines. In fact, you talk about a number of things Confederates do to try to break the blockade. Since they don't have the same resources, uh, they go to some, some pretty radical innovations. They, they're, they're playing the part of a much weaker uh, naval force trying mm-hmm. to use uh, unorthodox weapons to uh, attack a more conventional navy. And uh, they had some success in this, uh, and they certainly, to some extent, uh, curbed a federal aggress- naval aggressiveness. And that's what they're meant to do. Uh, unfortunately, um, they tried to do it in terms of... Uh, ironclad vessels, they tried to do too many things. Uh, they tried, started too many projects. Um, and uh, while they might have benefited from a, a, a central clearinghouse to make sure that the resources that were available were used effectively, that just didn't happen. Now, you said a moment ago that Great Britain had sympathy for the Confederacy and Certainly, they have an economic interest in the cotton that's not coming their way. Did Do you think there was a, any possibility that the blockade could have been enforced in such a way that would have brought Great Britain into war with the U.S.? Well, the war, Great Britain threatened war when the U.S. stopped uh, the mail packet Trent and removed mm-hmm. the Confederate diplomats who were heading to Europe. Um, that was fairly early in the war. Um, later on, as uh, the federal military grew, uh, as the federal army grew, and as the federal navy grew, and especially with the addition of the uh, ironclads to the federal navy, uh, Great Britain's uh, respect for American military might became more pronounced, and her attitude uh, became much more uh, Placid. Uh, there was an, an incident where uh, a, confe- a group of Confederate sympathizers seized a, a, a federal a commercial vessel uh, with the intent of uh, running it into Canada and turning it into a blockade runner. Um, Secretary Wells sent out a bunch of hot pursuit messages and uh, a, a, a small federal flotilla of gunboats pursued uh, this this uh, provide vessel into a harbor in Nova Scotia uh, and had a, 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 a an armed confrontation with the uh, local authorities. The federal guns per, uh, per possessed enough firepower to wipe out uh, the village where this occurred, uh, but cooler heads prevailed, um, and ultimately the whole. Uh, Incident was uh, was was uh, downplayed and, uh, and 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 glossed over. 
Um, I think that is a clear reflection that uh, over the course of the war, um, Britain's military uh, respect for the United States grew. Also, um, Britain was this place where the Confederates uh, built uh, a couple of their cruisers that preyed upon uh, federal commercial trade, and the uh, fact that the uh, the fact that this damage was going on uh, from, from a British origin, from a British source, um, mm-hmm. brought the uh, British government to be much more circumspect uh, and uh, actually participated in preventing additional uh, vessels from uh, launching from Great Britain to, to aid the Confederate Navy. Well, I think you also make a good point in the book that you know, had Great Britain decided to go to war, uh, it would have been very difficult for them to, to do so, to, uh, to get their, their fleet across the ocean and, and then deal with the United States fleet and its home waters. Uh, it was not going to be an easy matter. And uh, uh, the, the Southern belief, if, if we get recognized by Britain, then we win, uh, may not have been fully thought through. Well, the uh, British had uh, already conducted two uh, wars on the American continent, uh, one the War of Revolution and the other Mm -hmm. uh, during the War of 1812. Uh, Never had any, they they may have tried to suppress the revolution, but they eventually gave up the attempt. Uh, The invasion in the War of 1812 was really nothing more than a punitive expedition. They had Mm -hmm. no uh, intent of uh, conquering the country. It was simply beyond their capacity. So that's unlikely to, to ha- happen again here. Now, the, um, the the central question of all this, any book about this, is one that you, you touched on earlier about the effect, overall effect of this. At the end of the book, you have a series of tables showing how many blockade running attempts are made at each port in, in each year. And I was surprised by how high the num- how high the success rate was. Um, and that that seemed to suggest that the blockade wasn't very effective, but you, you've already made the point that it was a deterrent. Uh, so let me phrase the question differently. Do you think the U.S. Navy would have been more effective had it allocated its resources to something other than the blockade? Well, if, if there had been no blockade, there mm-hmm. would have been no deterrent. It would have been simply, you know, uh, we're open for business, please right. come. Uh, and all of the ships that, all of the commercial vessels that uh, fled uh, at the start of the blockade wouldn't have fled, uh, and they would have, uh, uh, all of those, all of the effort at blockading running would, would have been, all, all the costly effort at blockade running would have been replaced by a relatively uncostly uh, ordinary commercial trade. Uh, it is hard for me to see how that um, would have advanced federal the federal efforts to uh, end, end the Confederate uh, Revolution. The uh, we have just a few minutes left, and I want to ask the uh, uh, question. I, I every week think I gotta be sure and ask this, and every week I. Don't think of it till it's too late. Um, it's the old Civil War time machine, uh, Civil War talk radio time machine. 
in which I ask you if you could go back to this era for 30 minutes and return safely to the present, you could talk to one person while you're there. Uh, having written about this, is, is there who would be the one person you'd want to get to chat with for 30 minutes from this era? The president. Ah, Mr. That's Lincoln. an easy one. <laughs> um, I, it really is. He, he is the most interesting, fascinating character in the whole, whole tableau. And that's interesting because he, um, he doesn't feature as a major character in, in the book, but he's, he's certainly behind the legality of the blockade and the policy of it. Well, after, after him, I think I would like to speak with Secretary Wells. Um, mm-hmm. he, he expressed himself in a lawyerly manner mm-hmm. um, and trying to project the full authority of his office. But I have a feeling there was much more to the man than that. Uh, mm-hmm. And I find him... Um, actually less fully revealed than some of the, the, the major naval leaders. Um, I, I, I admire all of them to some extent. I just think uh, there might be more uh, to him that might, it would be capable of being uh, revealed. I, that's ironic, of course, because he, he left you know a wonderful and very detailed diary for us to read. And uh, mm-hmm. many other leaders didn't. But I, I, I hear what you're saying, that it does simply hint that there's even more that, that we could find out if we could just talk with him. Well, unfortunately, we are at the end of our hour. So uh, I will remind listeners, we're talking about campaign for the Confederate coast, blockading, blockade running, and related endeavors during the American Civil War. It's the work of our guest tonight, Gil Hahn. Gil, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for being on the show. Jerry, thank you. It has been a pleasure for my end, too. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.